in La Piazza. Jeannie, you started to make a great point. So let me jump into that of, wait a second, the laws are different across the country. Absolutely. And the needs, to Caleb's point, even if that, and that's a legitimate thing for an applicant to say, hey, here's, here's why we know our school is important. But you make that case to your authorizer, which is a local authority, not to Washington, D.C. and some federal grant reviewers. That's not the place for that case to be made. And it's and then, yeah, to Caleb's point, it's just it's just a backwards kind of thing. It gives excuses to people who don't want to give you a grant to say, well, no, you didn't prove it to me. So it's very, very problematic. Well, and, and Caleb, it is both to uh, help parents who are in need of a school that is better than the one they're leaving from, but also just to help students in general. We all know our kids are not wired the same. Some need small, some need large. I was having a conversation with a local official in my community last night who was mentioning that there's a charter school not too far that a lot of parents choose not to send their kids to for a number of reasons, but then there's others who are super happy with it. And her comment was, we've got great public schools here. You hear that all the time. That's really not the point. They're great for you. They may not be great for me. And so so on that note, one of the proposed priorities that became law forces, which is again, insane, forces collaboration. And basically not only forces collaboration, but here's the federal government arguing that charter traditional collaboration benefits students. So let me see, you're gonna make the charter schools share curriculum resources, or you're going to require or somehow evaluate for a condition of funding uh, that the charter is providing the traditional public school with its stuff, teacher professional resources. Now, anyone who's ever walked foot and a charter school knows that they're among the most collaborative people. Like, hey, come take it. Want to see it? But like, it's mine. But you don't see a lot of districts doing that. Why? Because actually, districts require schools and their professionals to do exactly what the district adopted. So where this gets really silly is that sounds right on its face, right, Dan? So you've talked to yeah. legislators and people all the time. Here's the problem: if you've got the reviewer at the federal level who's now reviewing your application, looking, and I guess to Caleb's point about illegal, let me prove collaboration. How do you prove that you're talking to someone? How do you prove you really did bend over backwards? And why should you have to? Isn't that not the purpose of education? Collaboration is not the purpose. If collaboration's a byproduct and it works, great. But it's like, couldn't they just take all of these 135 pages and just tie you up? 135 pages, Jeannie, just that alone, 135 pages to describe for some criteria, that just sounds ridiculous on its face. And you're making some great points, I would make another. So locally, local need, and one of them is, again, on its face, a very reasonable thing. We want to make sure you're not expanding segregation, that they're racially balanced. I mean, we support, we have a very diverse community in Michigan that is part of the charter school sector. But on, but on an individual school basis, it makes no sense. We have a number of schools that are culturally aware, intended to serve immigrant populations. Large variety of families are likely not going to go to a school that's three, four hundred some students, uh, focuses on another culture and a language to make sure that those immigrant families 
uh, can be well served. The district can't handle them, but that charter school can. And you're telling us that you don't deserve the capital that the federal government's putting up to start a, a quality school? It just makes no sense. Right. And I, I, I think that's kind of the problem is that when you look at all of these new criteria, they all seem reasonable. It's it's hard to argue with them. They say, of course we want collaboration. Of course we need to show need for the program. Of course we want to decrease segregation. All of those things are are obvious, but then when you look at them and look at what they're requiring, it's really sneaky. And and it it is a way that they can target really successful, necessary programs. Um, and and also, I mean, just at the the sort of broadest level. Yes, requiring this kind of um, application and reading this rule, just reading and complying with this new rule, that itself is an attack on the charter school because that is an effort to make it much more difficult, much more expensive for these programs to ever even reach out for the money in the first place. Absolutely. And they're already underfunded, right? Because it's always the devil's bargain. Most of the laws are passed and they said it was some portion of the full public per pupil, not construction, not facilities, certainly not the overhead. Uh, look at the com comparison of ESSERS, federal dollars coming in. So that's another, that goes to one of the things that Dan was saying earlier too, is just the behavior that it also creates, right? So it not only adds on that administrative burden to have to prove something, they're pernicious. They sound okay in face value. I was talking to a reporter. What's wrong with that? He's like, oh, that's not that's not bad. Schools don't want to do that. Folks, great schools actually exhibit all the kinds of things that we want without being forced or told, right? So great schools work to allow autonomy, freedom, flexibility. They're diverse. There are people dying to get in. But Dan, what happens? Help help sort of the layperson understand what happens when you know, Washington, even state legislators just start talking about the chilling effect of a of a rule. Yeah, that's a great point, Jeannie. It's there's two things I can see immediately. Like you say, lay person has never gone through opening a charter school. Number one is a lack of awareness or understanding of what's happening with that actual charter contract between the founding group and the authorizer. They're exploring all of these questions, looking very deeply. They know their communities. They know what's necessary. They're having those conversations about all these criteria and many more. What, what kind of curriculum are you using? Uh, what else is needed in the uh, community, um, where your where's your facility going to be? Who's going to be on your board? I mean, it's just a laborious but intentionally important kind of conversation. It's like a business startup uh, review thing, or maybe a grant process. And now you're going to add this on for just seeking a startup grant. That doesn't make any sense. It's redundant. And then, Jeannie, I, I think you're hinting to what we've already started to see in Michigan, which is when you get all this negative rhetoric, bureaucracies act like. Uh, a pool of water. The the stones that are being thrown in Washington, D.C. are having ripple effects across the country. Uh, we've got good relationships with our Michigan Department of Education, but we're struggling to use the grant that was issued to us, this very grant back in 2018, and these criteria don't even exist. They're starting to just get tighter because they see the negative discussions. Well, maybe this isn't quality. Maybe we should weigh in. And it just squeezes out the very intention the grants were used. We're having a hard time using the actual funds that were granted. Mm -hmm. Right. Because you have to because you're, you have to create so many 
um, distinctions in so many programs and policies. You know, one of them um, that they started out with that I know a lot of charter schools across the country, again, charter schools that who came to Washington to protest this, by the way, you and other people did such a great job organizing these thousands of parents who are deeply involved in their child's education. But the feds are saying, oh, some charter schools don't involve teachers and parents. We need you to involve them more as active participants. So what does that do? Okay, now I've got to prove that I'm involving active, actively parents. So I have to, so I'm going to start a charter school under the new Biden regulations. I have to have an open forum. I don't have an open forum. I'm not going to be able to prove to the state, to prove to the federal government why I deserve that grant. So who's going to come to my public forum? Busy parents who are working and worrying about their kids or the union leaders who got the note saying, show up and protest this charter school. Like, and I think that's your point. Like there's all these issues going on between the charter applicant and the contract or the charter school and their authorizer. There's also constantly uh, this community antagonism that's not coming from the people who need the school or the people who want to work at the school, but it's coming from people whose lives are challenged because the charter school exists. So how, Caleb, do you, how do you articulate that? Like, are you going to be in court saying my plaintiff is the mass, you know, is MAPSA, is Dan Cuisenberry and the charter schools in Michigan. But is there any way to get parents and teachers involved in saying how this has done them harm? Well, yes. And, and I mean, that's the short answer. But, but look, we represent MAPSA. We represent the Fordham Institute in the lawsuit. But this is on behalf of charter schools everywhere. And this is, an, this is a challenge to the rule, not just this particular rule. I mean, this is a challenge to the whole idea that the Department of Education is allowed to add these additional conditions, these additional criteria. That's our long-term goal. But it is very important, and, and it's certainly something that we are arguing to the court, we will be arguing to the court, to hear from the community and hear from parents. And, and one of the things that has really stuck with me um, as I've been working on this case, as I've been talking to people about it, the parents who have talked to me about how important charter schools have been for them and their children and how insane they think these rules are for a lot of the reasons that, that you were talking about, about how this is really a way that the administration is trying to empower the local schools that resent charter schools. They resent, they, they view them as competition or as a negative on the school district and they resent them and they're trying to stop them. And that's really what, what this has been about, I think, in a lot of ways is, is giving additional tools to those school districts who want to stop the charters from happening in the first place. Yeah, and Jeannie, you're making an excellent point. Parents do care about this. They showed up in Washington, D.C. back in May protesting these regulations, over a thousand of them. That was a, that's a huge thing. How many families have a chance to get break up their day and go to Washington, D.C. to protest? But they're there. And this is, even in this case, um, the rules were reissued um, over the 4th of July week, and we had a 30-day window to file this lawsuit. It was re it's really difficult to get people engaged and say, oh, by the way, do you, put, do you want to put your name on a lawsuit with the federal government in 30 days? So as I've talked to parents just in these last few weeks, they're all, they, they do get it, 
um, damn, this is ridiculous. Uh, you're disempowering me. You're 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 removing my. They're removing my voice from this process. But yeah, they're hesitant to speak up yet. Uh, they will have their chances as this case plays out. But we decided it's really important. We'll put our name there. We can file a lawsuit, and we joined in with the Fordham Foundation to do that. Isn't this also um, kind of old-fashioned when you think about how we're redefining education every day? You know, I mean, look what we just went through with COVID um, and and how many people, by the way, are not going back to traditional public education. What schools actually stayed open during COVID or at least those that closed had really substantial virtual synchronous versus asynchronous education. It was charters. It was private, mainly Catholic schools uh, who went back more quickly, you know, were able to turn on the dime. And then who are actually the schools that are doing the innovation that we've seen over time? By the way, innovation could be using a pencil differently. It doesn't have to be technology. It's how you do things. And so here we are in this day of age of artificial intelligence that's powering robotics programs in charter schools in Washington, D.C., science and, and, and engineering programs at places like Henry Ford Charter School that you guys have there in Michigan, the Jalen Rose Academy in Detroit, all these schools that are doing really interesting, compelling things that are constantly beating themselves to the next level. And we're talking about preserving, you know, a 150-year-old school system. And that's what the Biden administration's regulations and part of it's it's kind of like I don't know I I feel like I'm in a different era. Yeah, Jeannie, it's a good point, and uh, you've been doing this work longer than any of us. But yeah, I've I've been working at this for almost 25 years. It's still difficult for people to understand what that innovation means. Some of the some of the schools that have started up recently and used this grant in Michigan, school way up in the Upper Peninsula that focused on the Finnish community. Um, very unique in that area, very demanded by parents in the community. You wouldn't open a Finnish school in Dearborn where it's largely the Arab American community. Uh, it was necessary. There was a school a number of years ago that was started by a special ed educator and a chef uh, designed for um, dis disabled or partially disabled young adults, uh, focused on the culinary arts. It's a skills, a life skills and career school. It's one of the most fabulous places you'll ever want to visit. That's innovation in education. So I, I could go on and on and on, but those are the kinds of things. And yeah, um, it takes an important amount of money to start a school, to secure a building. You have to open it up and get people hired before you're ever paid by the state. So it's a matter of making those schools, those good ideas, who work with their authorizers and flush out all those ideas and make them sound to capitalize it so it starts. And uh, that's what that federal grant was intended to do. Bill Clinton saw it. Um, I'll, I'll just turn it back with this. What in the world have these four presidents ever agreed on? Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. They all supported charter schools in this grant. That's what they supported. Uh, and now we're going to face this kind of ridiculous criteria. I, I, it was just unfathomable. Well, look at Caleb's organization based in California, but obviously works nationally. You had a governor like Jerry Brown. Think about the governors. The governors that supported that, you know, Delaware, Tom Carper, now a U.S. Senator, Jerry Brown, like a crazy socialistic governor who loved charter schools. I remember when he was mayor of Oakland, um, he couldn't get enough of 
our combined work and was constantly calling people to go meet with him and tell him more what he had to do um, and on and on and on. And so, so what do you do with, so what do you do with that? So I guess I've got two questions for you, Caleb. One is, and Dan, feel free to jump in. First of all, how do you make sure that these, these, the leaders of our states understand this and are willing to engage and, and can they sign on to a lawsuit, for example? And I guess the second question, which is um, sounds unrelated, but it's not entirely. Why did many people in the charter school movement claim that basically their efforts created a victory and that not to worry about it? I mean, a lot of people were really mad about these regulations and then we kind of lost the anger because people thought they got better. Right. And, and, and so I think to answer both of those questions, I think it's worthwhile to talk a little bit about the process here, because, you know, that is actually one of the aspects of the lawsuit is about how the department went about issuing this new rule. So some people might remember back in the spring, the, the department issued a proposed rule that looked a little bit worse. I think substantively, it's pretty much the same, but they issued a proposed rule. It got a lot of, of really outrage, I think, from the community, from the charter school community broadly. Um, and the department opened a 35-day comment period. Now, to put that in perspective, normally on a regulation from an administrative agency like this, 90 days minimum comment period. Um, but the department said, no, 30 days is plenty. Don't worry about it. And in that 30 days, they got about 25,000 comments, which is a tremendous number. I mean, it, it's not uncommon in a normal rule, there might be 50 comments. So this is just, I mean, really an astounding amount of outrage and concern from the community. Um, and the department responded by, by sort of deleting a few of the really bad things they put in there and then saying in the fine print, but we'll still consider all these same things. It's just, we're just changing the wording a little bit. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people who commented, um, you know, they did claim victory because they said, look, they changed it. They changed it in response to what we did. But I think if if you look at what the department has done and, and you look at their intentions, it's it's pretty clear that they're not it, they, it, it didn't go away. And I think that's really the point where we felt like we had to file a lawsuit. We had to challenge it in the courts. And Jeannie, you, again, we've all lived in the political world, but a lot of listeners may not. Um, so you release revisions over the 4th of July weekend. That's done intentionally so nobody's paying attention. Exactly. And then, yeah, July is July. Uh, schools are out. People are busy. Um, it's, it was really hard to get people's attention. I do think there was a factor there. And then secondarily, Jeannie, I'm just going to say it candidly. We fought this last year as Congress was looking at it in the budget. And then it came out in the regulations this spring. We fought it again, collectively, we. And now, how much do you continue to push at a federal program that's important to you before it becomes dangerous to do so? Um, if if I was a state that was looking to secure that grant right now, 
Yeah, you know, I wouldn't want to be talking with Dan Quisenberry and following on <laughs> the lawsuit. Yes, afraid, you will be penalized. Absolutely. They, uh, Boy, that's a little intimidation if you yeah. ask me. So, that's yeah, cool. we're standing up because we can and we should. And I, I know from making a lot of phone calls, there's a lot of support. There's a groundswell out there kind of going, thank you for doing this. Thank you for standing up. This is too important. It needs to be done. You know, I've seen a lot of your uh, schools, or at least are familiar with a lot of the schools in Michigan. There are how many now? More than 294. Serving 150,000 students. Amazing. Which a lot of people say, well, that's still not more than 10% or whatever the state, but the impact they've had on other schools and people's thinking and the groundswell of support for alternatives has, has grown as a result. Some of those schools might be incredibly niche schools, as you said earlier, but a minority community and it's 99% African-American. Some may be like in Minnesota, 90% Hmong, Vietnamese, right? One of the things in here basically says, prove that you're not isolating kids. Prove that you're not isolating kids. Meyer, years ago, people getting really mad that there was an all minority school in North Carolina that opened up it was one of the first called healthy start white woman opened up a school predominantly served black kids it was like not there's like one black kid there one white kid and that's what the community needed and those parents loved that school and there were detractors Caleb and Dan who would say well that's not good I mean they need to be in an integrated community their parents put them there because their integrated school was awful and that stayed one of the best charter schools for a long time until the regulations increased and people were like, oh, you have to have balance and whatever. So, again, part of the other thing I think people have to know is, is that the regulations not only intentionally, and as you said, Caleb, in a clever way, try to like undermine charter school autonomy, but there is an ideology throughout. There's an ideology throughout these regulations that say there should be big systems, there should be top-down controls for what kinds of kids go to what schools, that neighborhoods have to be involved, and so that school boards and school districts are actually the prime mover of public education. And so at the end of the day, sadly, because again, so many people throughout the, the Biden ecosystem are friends and good people who truly do believe in innovation. But at the Department of Education, they're like stuck in 1965. Yes. Yeah, Gene, there's lots of, um, you made a lot of good points there that that racial balance, again, absolutely the right idea on its face. Uh, There's a school started a number of years ago, frankly, uh, the idea of the Federation of Teachers in Detroit uh, happened kind of behind the scenes because for obvious political reasons, they didn't really want people to know they were starting a charter school. It's a fabulous little school, but it's it's a neighborhood school. It was intended to be a neighborhood school. And there's not a lot of diversity in that neighborhood. There just isn't. But as it became more popular, they had a hard time. I mean, it's a public school. You can't discriminate. You can't re- uh uh, reject people from applying, but it became very popular outside of that neighborhood. And the school leaders were struggling because they're going, wait a second, that's not what this is for. We wanted a quality program here within the confines of this neighborhood, not for those that can travel in because now it's become a popular school. Um, what do you do with that? That's not 
<laughs> you can't prove something that's just doesn't make sense on its face. And I mentioned the culturally aware schools. We've got a number of them. They're just fabulous places. Parents choose them. Uh, it's got second language familiarity, uh, cultural familiarity, um, just lots of important things that um, uh, on a native reservation, again, you're just not going to have a lot of racial diversity. But is it important to the families in that community? Absolutely it is. So yeah, very difficult thing. But even if even you could write the rule right, you got to prove this to a grant reviewer or a bureaucrat who's afraid of the auditors and how they're going to be viewed, <laughs> that just doesn't make sense and it doesn't work. It means and people get rejected. It means you have difficulty spending your grants when you turn in for reimbursement. It becomes harassment. Yeah. And, the, and those grant review processes, and even with the best reviewers, they're numerical. And you actually ascribe, a lot of people don't know this, but the federal government requires you to ascribe numbers for the number of times certain words or phrases are said. And so the smart grant reviewer that hires a really good grant writer knows all of those little pain points. So the states that will game this and get money, then will turn around and regulate their schools are the ones that are already probably regulating their schools. And the states with really strong charter school laws, strong defined by lots of freedom, flexibility, autonomy, healthy, diverse options like Michigan, and Washington, D.C., and Arizona, and, and so on, and Florida, um, aren't going to play those games because they don't want to they don't want to regulate. So so the so the states like yours that have great, healthy environments are going to be penalized. And those that have already been regulating the heck out of their charters will just be like, eh, we'll take it. It's fine. It's another it's another pot of money. OK, so let me not belabor the point i'm sure people are dying to learn more about this um first caleb will this go to the supreme court is it that kind of a case who knows <laughs> I, I mean we're in the federal court in in the western district of michigan right now we filed the lawsuit and you know we're hoping to get a, a very clear order from the court that this rule and any rule like it is unlawful period full stop you never know how these cases turn out though and you know if if we are successful there's always the chance the government appeals the department of education is going to try to hold on to this authority they want this power because they want to be able to do whatever they want to with charter schools um and and you never know i mean cases like this do end up at the supreme court and it really is a fundamental question about who makes these kinds of decisions Congress already made this decision. Congress supported charter schools, period. That was that was enacted into law, that was signed by the president. And now the Department of Education, which is just an administrative agency, nobody elected them, nobody voted for them. Now they're saying, actually, we don't like them, so we're gonna just change the rules. We're gonna overrule everyone else. Dan, final word. Uh, what can people do to get involved? Where can they write? Um, what do you need? Certainly reach out to the to Caleb and the Pacific Legal Foundation or MAPSA. Um, um, I'm sure there's some contact information, but my first initial last name at charterschools.org and uh, we'd be happy to uh, uh, help people be aware, but probably more specifically, I mean, there's still possibility that some plaintiffs may join. They can do that. 
I think Caleb would confirm. Uh, there'll be opportunity for maybe friendly amicus briefs, but those are probably folks in the sector. If you're outside of that, put eyes on the case. Uh, be supportive of the basic idea that parents should be in charge of choosing their child's education. It's becoming more supported across the country as we've seen new polls here in Michigan and across the country. It doesn't matter who you are, what your political background is, your economic background. Parents want to be in control of their child's education. So retweeting it and saying it's, hey, this is a good idea. What's the federal government thinking? Uh, keeping an eye on this case would be really helpful. Fantastic. Well, I appreciate so much Caleb Kruckenberg from Pacific Legal, Dan Cuisenberry from MAPS in Michigan, uh, the fight for um, freedom, right, for freedom for parents' right to choose and control their child's destiny um, is embedded in this. So wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for coming in Piazza today. Thank you. Thank you. In La Piazza.